Welcome to the Creative Blood Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Conway. If you've ever wanted a backstage pass into the world of creativity from the best in the business, this one's for you. Get ready to hear genuine conversations with the artists, entrepreneurs, and creative minds who know no boundaries. Here we go. He didn't want me complimenting him. He didn't want me being a fan. He didn't even want me asking, what do you want from me? He wanted to know what I was all about. He asked me more questions about my creative process than I asked him. And if I was to sum him up, it's like the tour that I would create that he inspired would be called the Be Who You Are Tour, because that's why everybody loves him. Ahead of jumping into this episode, I wanted to take the opportunity to make a toast to everyone who has listened to the podcast since we launched back in April this year and our team who brought it all together for and with us. We thank you for your support and we look forward to sharing an exciting lineup of new conversations with you in the new year. We wish you a very Merry Christmas, a peaceful end to 2021 and a rock and roll start to 2022. And now, here's our bonus episode with Bowie's piano man himself, Mike Garson, talking all things. Mr. David Bowie. When I first auditioned for David and Mick Ronson in 72, I walked in in jeans and a t-shirt and these guys in the middle of the fucking week were decked out like they were on stage. I'm thinking, who the fuck yeah. are these guys? You know what I mean? <laughs> so there's a lot to a an amazing performer and he had every aspect of it. And I'm going to tell you something else. A friend of mine had a dream a few days after he died and he saw David as having an extra limb, L-I-M-B. Because it was a dream, he said it was hard to explain, but it was like he had a third arm, but it was spiritual. He was trying to say he was endowed with something us normal mortals didn't have. And that's why he's different than John Lennon and Dylan and Paul McCartney, who were magnificent artists. And John was one of his closest friends. But historically, we're going to see, because I predicted this 20, 30 years ago, that in 100 years, he's our Da Vinci. He's our Michelangelo. Because I've seen, if, if you look behind me, that picture, behind, did we talk about this last week? No. Which one? This one here. I'm going to go point. I hope I don't fuck up the the, uh, the wires. This picture. Yeah. He painted or charcoaled that of me as we were recording the outside album. He had an easel set up as I'm playing. Yeah. He did three of them. He said he was going to send them all to me. The motherfucker sold two of them in London. My fucking face is in somebody's yeah. <laughs> house now in London. I wanted the pictures, but at least I got that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway. That was, that was one of three. That was one of three. That's one of three, but he did one of each band member. Through a two-week recording session Yeah. in, in Montreux in the same studio that Queen recorded in, with the same engineer that recorded Queen. Oh, wow. Right on the lake. In Switzerland. I mean, with me playing a nine foot Steinway and fucking Brian Eno two feet behind me on a DX7, and I'm hearing beep, beep, 
all these sounds going off. Every day, Brian would go to a little music store right next to the place, bring another box and connect it to his old Yamaha DX7. And I'm playing like, I'm doing all this shit, and I'm hearing, beep, 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 beep. The combination of the two of us, it was absolute genius, and it was all improvised. And then this is the outside album. This is in the same period when you were there. Yes. Alan Edwards is a very close friend of mine. I love him. Very and special guy. I learned a lot from him. Guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very special. And, um, you know, this was a, a dream come true because it was an improvised album. David said to me a month or two, well, maybe maybe six months before we appeared in, in Montreux to do the outside album, that he had a rough time in the 80s, felt he sold out, and which he really didn't, but he he was getting pressure from the record company. They wanted more Let's Dance kind of stuff, and yeah. you can't repeat history that way. So he didn't like his works. He said, I got to get back to myself. We're going to go over to Switzerland. I'm choosing over the last 30 years who were the most influential musicians who affected my life. So I'm bringing in Carlos Alomar, Reeves Gabrels, um, Brian Eno, Sterling Campbell, and myself on piano. And we went in there. He said it's going to be an improvised album, played for two, three, four hours every day, and me and Brian will piece it together and make an album. And it was supposed to be a trilogy, the outside album, but some bastard in the studio who was an assistant engineer or something stole the tapes, somebody, and they released them as bootlegs, all the improvisations. So it took the life out of them. They're great to listen to as raw material, but they weren't treated or mixed or anything, and it very much upset David. But a few months before he passed, he had spoken with Brian Eno, and he talked about wanting to now maybe go back 20, 30 years later and and, and do the second and third uh outside part of the trilogy, but of course it wasn't meant to be because he passed away. But um, you could see he was even thinking about that three or four months uh, before. And when you say this thing that you have all these ideas and, and questions and it's all flurrying in, that's how I hear music. And it takes a lot of patience to get a concept in your head that is holographic and you have a million questions and then to have the patience to linear let them unfold in physical universe time. And half the things don't come out and different things come out in, in the same way, you know, and I'm telling you these stories. But that's what a good podcast is because everything else people can get in all the books and the biographies on David or myself or this or that. It's this kind of stuff that is also improvised and, and just comes out as an experience of two creative people wanting to share something. Look, in psychology, they know for a fact uh, that 80% of all communications are telepathic and people's expressions and their thoughts. I was watching a Life on Mars version of me and David alone in Paris in 1999. I think I might've shared it with you. And, uh, what I loved about it wasn't my piano playing or her singing, which you would expect has to be good if you have the job and he's the artist and I'm the pianist. It's almost like that comes with the territory. That's what you pay to do. But I was enjoying 
how he was receiving me and looking at me and appreciating me and not jealous of me and supportive of me. And everyone who talks about that was impressed with just his looks and his smile during my solo and during the beginning and, and how he acknowledged me. That has, to be honest with you, that kind of a thing, which has occurred many times over my long thousand shows with the guy and 20 albums, um, that's what people who don't understand the music per se, if David says it or sees it or shows it on his face or writes about it, his, his crew of people who resonate with him now will embrace me because... Yes. I have a few thousand jazz fans and a few hundred classical fans, but I have millions of people who love David who now love me because I was one of many contributing factors. I didn't play on every album of his, and he had most phenomenal musicians along the way. I didn't play on the Ziggy album. I played on the Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs. Uh, there's Mick Ronson, there's Carlos Alomar, there's Earl Slick, you know, there's Donnie McClasson, you know. There's so many people, Brian Eno, um, you know, um, different phases. He, he, he was like the ultimate casting director. Every musician he ever had, even if they only lasted three months, a record or two, it was the perfect one at the time. I was only hired for eight weeks. The fact mm. that when you throw spaghetti on a wall and see what sticks, I stuck. And yet we were the most opposite of people, especially in the early 70s in lifestyles. And I was married with kids and very young ones. And, and he had his lifestyle. It's like there was nothing about us that was similar except the main thing and the most important thing was our creative process was very similar on how music unfolds and how the spontaneousness of creation and co-creation together allowed for us to be a duet, not just I'm his accompanist and he's the great David Bowie. He never made me feel that way. He included me and he never micromanaged me. He gave me a wide angle and a vision, if that, but he just let me be me. And in my life, not too many people just let me be me. And if I was to sum him up, it's like the tour that I would create that he inspired would be called the Be Who You Are tour because that's why everybody loves him is and this guy was not without faults don't get me wrong or without ego or without transgressions uh, there's no human that is and when you're in the limelight it's going to be exposed more so there were a lot of things he did that were not okay however when you forgiveness plays a big role here and then when all is said and done and the guy leaves the planet but he's still alive as a spirit, you feel a body of work and still I'm learning about him now because he didn't want me in fan mode when I was, I was his pianist. He didn't want me complimenting him. He didn't want me being a fan. He didn't even want me asking, what do you want from me? He wanted to know what I 
was all about. He asked me more questions about my creative process than I asked him. And I found out within the last few years that he got annoyed when I would ask him because he he was I was one of the only ones he looked up to because I came from a whole other world, brought that music and magic to him. And I was a year and a half older and I was from New York and I, I had a different experience that he wanted to incorporate into his music. So in some ways I was the icing on the cake or the whipped cream on the cake because he had the infrastructure with the spiders and Mick. And what I did was very brave of him to allow such uh, absurd and crazy notes to be placed on a rock album in 1973. That's, That's way ahead of its time. So I love him for that. Music, there's no, I don't hear divisions. I know they sound differently, but it's just, it's like talking. It's like whatever comes out is what comes out. You know, some of it might be bullshit and some of it might be great. You, you hope for the latter, you know, but it's, it's, it's an expression. Now, it takes a long time to master the elements that make up music, which is rhythm, harmony, and melody. But the art that you're playing and what you refer to as the heart and the connection really has nothing to do with uh, rhythm, harmony, and melody. They're givens any more than lighting for a photographer or a director for, you know, or producer. They each have their skill set, but the art that ultimately emanates, Gary Oldman's a good friend of mine and uh, he loved Bowie and they were close friends and, we were talking and he, he recorded a Bowie song with me called I Can't Read and just he's a great singer too. And he and he uh, he was letting his guard down because we became friends and he said, Do you know how few good actors there are? Do they know those motherfuckers that I've been working on this craft for fifty years and you get these superficial actors and he said, and I've studied Shakespeare and all it was like the reason he was saying that is he saw that in my piano playing, you know, it's, it's like we connected. Yeah. And David said something very profound to me uh, in 2003 in a rehearsal. He said, Mike, if I had to do it all over, I would make what I'm doing more of a community than I'm the great artist on stage, and there are those fucking peons out there, whatever you call it in England, the punters or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't use punters here. But um, but that's the point. He was trying to say, yeah, it's a collective. And I'm having a rough time acclimating to that because I was geared to be a virtuoso soloist to awe people and play things that nobody could play. As I mentioned with David, it's like, it's not about you or me. It feels that way when you're talking. It's it's everybody's story. I just know how to codify it and put it into words because that's one of my purposes in life, to share and, and be. You know, I've spent hundreds, at least 100,000 hours banging on the piano. So I'm by myself most of the time, even though I'll be married in a few weeks for 53 years. But I'm still like mostly by myself, you know, and 
because music, as much as I love groups, you have to do the work, just like you did all the research on me. Once you're prepared, it all flows, and then the joy is all your questions and all your practice mean shit. I Bowie called me once in 2002 to do Wild as Wind, the Wind with him just on a show, just me and him, and I decided to do total go total anal on it and, and make an arrangement that I had never done for him. And I prepared every note and I played it for him. And he said, it's way too heady for the way I'm used to you playing. And I stripped it all down again. He brought me back to who I was. I thought I was doing the right thing, but by making all that preparation, then I was able to just play flow. And, but I had worked every note out before and he just had no use for it. I love him for that. Thanks for joining us this week. If you like what you just heard, follow us, give us a review and send it to a friend. Say hello on socials at Creative Blood Agency and use the hashtag Creative Blood Pod. This episode was produced by Josie Coulter, engineered and mixed by Ben Beheshti, artwork designed by Sarah Thompson, music by Ben Towns Brown, presented by me, Laura Conner.